Good morning. You know I have a thing about titles, so I might as well get that out of the way right now. Lesson 14. I won't uh, trouble you with my list of possibilities, although you will see some as subtitles. But I ended up with the lion, the wench, and the wardrobe. (laughs) I thought that wasn't really too bad for a week's work. Seriously, one of my uh, one of my good friends suggested to me that uh, it would be important to sort of tie together the main ideas of the book of Judges and to relate those to the message of Scripture. And I did not really expect it to come from this text, but it does. This, I think, the message that this text brings, at least to me, is perhaps one of the most important messages I've ever done in my mind. I didn't say the best. You'll have to judge what happens on that. But for me, I have a sense that this is a vitally important message that comes out of our text in perhaps a sort of strange way. So what I plan to do is this. We're actually covering two chapters, uh, chapters 14 and 15 this week, and next week we will cover chapter 16, Samson and Delilah. But uh, I want to go through the events of the chapter, then I want to focus on a few elements, a few highlights, and then what I want to do is to sort of try to bring all those pieces into focus and say, in, in all of these details, what is it that the author is trying to tell us about Samson and about the nation Israel, and what is he telling us about God and our relationship to him? I think this text will lead us in that direction. So I call the, the entire section Trouble in Timnah, and, uh, and we'll just walk our way through it. You know that... Uh, Timnah is really sort of on the border between Israel and and the Philistines. And so actually that territory has kind of moved back and forth between Israelite possession and and Philistine possession. At this point in time, it is in uh, the possession of the Philistines. Samson goes there. We're not sure why. But we are told that he sees a woman who is attractive to him. So far as I can tell, he has not talked to her yet. She looks good. The text literally says twice, she looks good in my eyes. Which, of course, has familiar ring to it in terms of every man does what's right in his own eyes. And so he comes back and he tells his parents, this is the woman, get her for me. Now, I don't know how no, uh, strong as Samson was normally, but, but I would think that this is one of those times when if you were a parent, you would think twice about talking back to your son. And, and, and so they basically do their best to say, uh, don't you think you ought to think about this? Isn't there a, a, a woman in, in our tribe, Dan, or in, within all of the nation of Israel, isn't there a woman that we could, uh, that you could marry instead of an uncircumcised Philistine? Great question. And, uh, he rejects the question and does not answer it. I want this woman. Period. Now, verse four tells us that what the parents don't know at this period of time is that God's got a purpose in what their foolish son is doing. God is going to use this 
to give a measure of freedom from the Philistines through Samson's actions. They don't know that, and so you can imagine the consternation that's in their hearts as they unwillingly participate in in what is going to take place. But that brings them to the family trip uh, down to Timnah to uh, check the, the this woman out and to begin to uh, to negotiate in terms of the wedding. I find it really interesting. Remember that a Nazarite is not to have anything to do with grapes, right? No grape skins, no grape seeds, no grape juice, and no grape juice that's been around a while and now equals wine. And it's at the vineyards that are there at Timnah that the lion comes out and and he uh, attacks Samson. And Samson has the spirit come upon him, and in great strength he literally rips that lion apart and apparently casts him aside. What's interesting is his parents don't see that. And in fact, they don't see him later when he reaches in and scoops the, the honey out of the, out of the lion's carcass, which causes me to ask the question, how come they're making this trip together and they're not together? And I have a feeling that this is a very strained situation. The parents aren't really into this thing at all. They really don't want to be a part of it. And so it's, it looks to me like they're sort of traveling a ways apart while they're working their way toward Timna. But he, uh, he then makes it to, uh, to Timna, and, uh, and then I call the next section. I'm sorry, why Samson called her honey. Um, and, and when you look at this, they're now on their way to Timna again, but some time has passed. What's interesting to me is that the lion's carcass is not laying beside the road. The lion's carcass is out of the way. And so the text tells us that in order to look at this carcass, he has to go out of his way to see it. And you're saying to yourself, what in the world is a Nazarite who is not to be defiled by death? What is he doing fixing on the carcass of a dead lion? All I can think of is he's saying to himself, Oh, that was pretty good. You know, I must have done a good job on this guy. And, and so he sees the bees. He sees the honey. He scoops the honey out of the, the carcass of the dead lion. And he's now walking along, joins up with his parents, and then says, Man, you guys need to have some of this honey. He doesn't tell them. Here's a guy who spills everything to, to Ms. Wonderful, whoever she is. <laughs> he doesn't tell his parents some things that they really ought to know. Now, this is unclean, folks. It isn't just out of bounds for Nazarites. It's out of bounds for Israelites. He feeds them the honey, and they eat it unwittingly being defiled by this Nazarite boy. Well, then they're, uh, they come back to Timnah, and now the father has some arrangement that he's making. This is probably similar to Near Eastern weddings, and I don't know exactly how Philistine weddings went, but it seems like the father has a conversation with the bride, and no doubt there are other family discussions that go on, and, and then uh, the, uh, the ceremony will take place, and then ultimately there is the consummation of the marriage. Uh, but at this point, you notice that she will be called from here on his wife, although it seems to me it's clear the consummation has not yet happened. So Samson now, in the custom, I take it, of the Philistines, has this wedding party 
which is, uh, I think most would agree, it's a party at which there's going to be alcohol. It's, it's a drinking feast. And, uh, and, and so the uh, party is, is held, and 30 companions are, are given to Samson. Now, remember, he's a kind of an out-of-towner, and the way they would do things, the, the groom would have his, his friends, and so they've sort of rented his uh, rent a friend for the groom, and they've got 30 of these guys that show up. They're Philistine guys, and and they obviously don't have any particular uh, attraction or, or uh, desire to be around Samson, but apparently they've been paid their dues. That prompts Samson to go back to the lion story and the honey, and I think this guy was really clever with words from what we see just in our text. I, th- I think the guy was not just strong, but it looks to me like he was really clever in, in his words, and so he makes up this riddle. And, and he says to these guys, now, if you solve the riddle, then I owe you a, a full garment. It seems like it's the kind of the undergarment and then the outer thing. Oh, by the way, I call this the Israel's first clothier. I'm sorry, I just couldn't let that pass. But here's a guy who's the first Jew in the clothing business that I know of in the Bible. So he's offering to provide them with a, with a suit, as it were, uh, if they can figure out the riddle. On the other hand, if they can't figure out the riddle, then they owe him a suit of clothing, and that would mean 30, 30 suits for him if it turned out that way. And then he gives them the riddle uh, in verse 14, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Now, we, of course, know what that is. They did not. They worked and worked on that riddle. And then middle of the week came along and they said to themselves, We're, <laughs> we got paid to come here. We didn't get paid enough to buy a suit of clothes for this guy. So we're going to have a little chat with this gal. They took her aside. And notice how friendly these Philistines are. They're really friendly folks. They said, if you don't go along with this and produce this, we're going to burn you and your father with fire. The irony of it is, they do. Not for not finding out about the riddle, but later for the passing of the bride to another man. So they threaten, and, and you can imagine now, this, this celebration for the rest of the week, it was tears, tears, and more tears. That, that's a celebration I could have passed on personally. And finally, Samson just gives up. And, and he caves in at the end. He tells her what it's about. And then, of course, they answer the riddle as you see it. What's sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? By the way, Samson must have either been really brave or really foolish. I would not call my wife a heifer. <laughs> You plowed with my heifer. I wouldn't go home that night. <laughs> anyway, enough said about that. But then uh, he's he in his in his fit of anger. He then goes out and he is going to pay off this debt. So he goes twenty five miles or so to Ascalon, uh, further along into a Philistine territory, kills thirty men, takes their clothing and now presents it to these 30 men as the gift. And it, it's interesting to me that there are times when you, when you read the story along and you think, oh, finally it's over. But it isn't. It's just starting. And so we come to uh, chapter 15 and the events which are, uh, are described there. 
I'm sorry for my titles, folks, but I just couldn't control myself. This one's called, Who Took the Honey Out of Honeymoon? <laughs> now, think about this. You, you, there really is humor in this, isn't there? He goes off in a huff. He is madder than a wet hen. He is angry with her. He is angry with those men. He is angry with the city. He's just flat mad. And he goes off and goes back home to his father without consummating the marriage. So here he is, and, and all of a sudden, somehow the blues <laughs> strike old Samson, and he's getting lonely, and, and he's probably listening to the country and western music, and he decides that it's time he loads up that old pickup with his goat, and he's, which is kind of like a bouquet of flowers, and it's kind of like, gee, am I sorry? And so he's going to go see his bride. Now, it says more than that, folks. It says, I am going to her room. Now it's time in his mind. It's consummation time. It's been a while. It's not the way it normally goes. So he comes to the door, and he's got romance on his mind. Can you imagine the letdown? Knocks on that door, and her dad meets, meets him, not her. And he says, man, I'm really sorry, son, but uh, I already gave your wife away. You were so mad, I didn't think you were coming back. So I gave your wife to your best man. <laughs> this wedding thing's not going so well. I gave her to your best man. Now, here's another thing. Boy, these guys didn't have any female subtleties at all. He says, here, my, my younger daughter's better looking anyway. Take her. I'll bet the older daughter loved that. She's a heifer, and now the younger one's better looking than she is. <laughs> well, anyway. He uh, he refuses. He does not want any part of that, and now he's going to take his revenge. So he gets 300 foxes. Strangely, this past week, we had a fox in our yard. Honest to goodness, ask my. She lives next door. She went out to take a picture of it with her camera and the flash, and the flash sent him over to us. And, and so in our garden, you know, these guys have a tail that's about yay long. And, and so I couldn't help but think about this thing, those long tails. 300 foxes. I don't know how I caught that guy. But 300 of those guys he catches, ties their tails together, and then attaches a torch, you know, some kind of a, a, a stick or whatever with a cloth wrapped around it and then some uh, something that's burnable that's attached to that. And by the way, I forgot to tell you, the text tells us it just happens to be wheat harvest time. So think about this. Vineyards, we will know from the destruction, olive groves, and wheat harvest time. So what you have is not only the wheat fields, but you have the, the, uh, the stalks uh, that, that are sort of piled up where they're going to haul those things off and, and thrash them. So it's, it's just at the, the worst possible time to do the damage. There would be no, no planting of a new crop. No, no, it's just over. And so those foxes now take off in every direction. And you can imagine if you were a fox and had a fire on your tail, you would be moving right along. And if you're two foxes, then, you know, they're pulling one way and the other. They're covering the whole territory. So the bottom line is, uh, I'm sorry I said sour grapes, puffed wheat, and pitiful olives. <laughs> In other words, the whole crop's gone. And that sends a pretty significant signal, as you might expect, to the Philistines who are now really hopping mad. So he goes off and he hides 
in, in a cave uh, at the rock of Etam. And uh, now the Philistines come and they, they converge upon a, Philist, uh, a, a town of Judah. Now remember, his town, uh, his people are Dan, uh, Danites. This is a town of Judah that is being uh, attacked. And remember chapter 1. Who will go first for us against the Canaanites? And the answer is Judah will go. Judah is the one who is the aggressive one. Judah is the one who is the attacker. Well, Judah is now a wimp. And so the people of Judah come to the Philistines and they say, well, what in the world are you surrounding us for? What have we done? And they told the story of Samson and, uh, and what all had happened. By the way, you remember in the process, they went and, and burned the, the girl, the bride, the wife, who was never really his wife, and her father, just as they had threatened in chapter 14. So now they're saying, we want this Samson, we're going to make him pay. And the irony of it is, they got 3,000 men of Judah who come down to see and meet with Samson at the cave, but they're not coming to join Samson to fight Philistines. They're coming to arrest Samson to hand him over to Philistines. And so Samson meets with them and he gets them to make this promise. No, we won't kill you, Samson. We'll let them do it. We'll just tie you up securely and we'll turn you over. So remember, they take these new ropes and they bind him all up and it looks like, man, it's all over for Samson. And when the Philistines come, they apparently let out a war hoop as they're charging because now they're going to get their vengeance. And you remember the, the account says that the, that the ropes just snapped as though they were, they were nothing. And he picks up the jawbone of a fresh uh, donkey. And, and apparently that would have been flexible and, and, and more, do more harm than, a, than maybe an old uh, hardened one. And so he picks that thing up. It just had to be something laying around. And now he, he kills uh, a thousand of their, uh, of their people with the jawbone of that ass. Oh, what a, what a strange thing. And then he tells this story and he makes, you gotta understand he's doing word plays with this. So he makes up this kind of rhyme that would go like this. Moffat does it this way in his translation. With the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass. Now, that's the, that's the play on words. You can't do that with Hebrew. But, but what he's doing is telling the story. And notice, by the way, the story really emphasizes him. It's what I've done. And he sort of sings an ode to himself, as it were. And then you come to verses 18 and 19, where you could imagine, after fighting like that, a guy's going to be tired and thirsty. Wouldn't you agree? Pretty tired, pretty thirsty. And so he cries out to God his first prayer. <laughs> His first prayer in, in, in Judges, that is, uh, uh, to God. There will be another one that we'll see in 16. But it isn't really what you would call a pious prayer, is it? It's sort of like him saying, look, God, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, I'm going to die, and I'm going to end up fresh meat for these uncircumcised Philistines. That's an interesting word that he uses there. His parents used it of the, of the gal and, and the Philistines. Now he uses it. But, but it's not really the kind of prayer where you would say, now that's a prayer I'm going to pray. It isn't like the prayer of Jabez. Nobody's going to write books and say, here's a model prayer for you. Uh, 
But God opens up the rock and makes that a permanent spring. And so he not only satisfies the, the thirst of Samson, but now anybody that walks by that spring is going to be reminded. It's, it's sort of a monument. They're going to be reminded of what God did to provide uh, for Samson at his point of need. And then in verse 20, it tells us that Samson led Israel for 20 years. Now, here's some things to ponder. There, there are a, a number of things that we could reflect upon, but it seems to me here are some details in the text that, that perhaps we ought to focus more of our, our attention to if we had time. One, Timnah is not new to us in the Bible. And my guess is that if he were a good Jew, Timnah was not new to Samson either. Anybody remember where we encounter Timnah in the book of Genesis? Timnah is the place where Judah went at Miller time after the harvest. Timnah's where he went. Remember, he gets, he gets, he's got this buddy, Hira, that he sort of partners up with. Then he marries a Canaanite wife, and then he marries his sons off to Canaanites. All of that's to say, I don't think it's accidental, and it's almost like a little flashing red light. Maybe it's not very bright, but at this stage you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Timnah's probably not the place to be. Israel's been there before, and when they were, they were in trouble. Secondly, the path that Samson chose to walk was one that was clearly marked. You remember in, in Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about the two ways, and it says, here's what the one way looks like, here's what the other way looks like, this way leads to life, this way leads to destruction. There were, there were those two paths, and they were clearly demarked. And what I'm saying is, he knew from the law that where he was going, and I don't mean just physically, I mean where he is going spiritually with his life, seeking a Philistine wife. He knew where he was going was wrong. He knew from Deuteronomy that he ought to be listening to his parents, but he wasn't. And, and this guy is a classic case. If you want to read those warnings in Proverbs, especially those that have to do with sexuality and marriage and so on, this guy's a classic illustration of everything you shouldn't do. So when he walks this path, he does not stumble down this path ignorantly. He has made willful choices to disobey. I don't think you can look at the text and see it any other way. And there was a lion in the road. Now, you know that's one of my favorite expressions, but it, it occurs twice in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, the sluggard says, I can't go to work today because there's a lion in the road. Now, if there were a lion in the road, folks, if there were a lion standing outside those doors, I doubt that any of us are going to walk outside and say, well, this is okay. It's, it's a good reason not to be there. So there's really some warning. And then when you look at 1 Kings, you remember when the young prophet goes up to Bethel after Jeroboam becomes, the, the kingdom divides, and Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel, and he sets up those false places of worship, and he, set, he sets up this altar, and the young prophet says, you know, uh, God's going to break that altar, and the, and the bones of your false prophets are going to be burned on it. 
And Jeroboam says, seize that man. And rather than them getting seized, his arm got seized and he, the prophet had to pray for his arm. But long and short of it is the God said to that young prophet, don't go back the way you came. Remember, and the old prophet said to him, the Lord's talked to me and I've got later revelation and you need to stop by. When the man left the old prophet's place, a lion killed him. And the interesting thing was the lion didn't eat him. He didn't eat his, his animal he was riding on. He just killed him lying in the road does it not seem to you i mean just don't your juices begin to flow a little bit when you say here's a lion in the vineyard which attacks samson and there's just a way in which you'd say samson i think there's another red light on your dash saying warning now he also sees from that that god's spirit comes upon him and god protects him supernaturally But it seems to me you have to say there was warning for Samson that came from God. The word, the the Hebrew word for tell is used 14 times in in chapter uh, 14. I'm not sure about chapter 15. But it's, it's three times we're told what he doesn't say to his parents. And the tragedy is if he ought to be talking to anybody, he ought to be talking to mom and dad, especially about marriage. He didn't. He doesn't tell him about the honey. He doesn't tell him about the lion and the carcass because he would have been ceremonially unclean. I suppose one reason was, can you imagine, you've just been in contact with a dead animal. What would you have to do as a Nazarite? Go back, offer sacrifices, get clean, and then start all over again. Well, this boy's hot for Timna. He's not going back home. Anyway, so he doesn't tell his parents what he should but he sure does tell that gal what he shouldn't sad story the other thing i noticed is that he's a lonely guy he is a lonely guy nowhere else in the book of judges are are we told of any of the judges where we have the sense that he's the lone ranger he is he is where do you ever see anybody joining with him Everything he does is a solo act. Um, he's not close to his, his, his parents. He doesn't have close friends. His friends are rented friends. Rented friends. In, by, the, by the Philistines when he goes to the, uh, the, the drinking feast. He's not really close to women either. He's not really close to women. He may desire intimacy, but he does not have it, sadly. And he's not close to Israel. What a, what, a, what a tragic picture of a man who's living to himself and living by himself. And by the way, the tribes of Israel were doing that on a corporate level too. They weren't working together. They were all doing their own things. And as, Proverbs, as, as the, the writer to the judges says, each man was doing what was right in his own eyes. The beauty of it is found in chapter 14 and verse 4. Because what we see is a tragic story with this little footnote. His parents, in their agony over the disobedience of their son and what they knew would lie ahead, the parents did not know what God knew and what we know. God purposed this to achieve his purposes. He didn't make Samson sin. He did choose to use Samson's disobedience 
to achieve his purposes, which has to do with judging and delivering from the Philistines. I don't like the word addiction, but, but it seems to me that you have to say that Samson is a guy who is addicted to sex, but he really gets no satisfaction. It's just a tragic story of a man who keeps going back, and there's this repetitive cycle. Do you notice that? He keeps making the same mistake over and over again, and he doesn't seem to learn. Uh, it, it's a tragic thing, and, and I just think about that in relationship to this particular marriage. Uh, here, here you are with your bride. She's crying all the time. Well, those are happy days. She betrayed him and betrayed his confidence. The marriage is never consummated. I think that's fairly clear. The best man gets her. She and her father die. I mean, that is not a happily ever after text. But here is a man who has chosen to pursue the flesh, and he finds it does not satisfy. Sad, sad. He is a man without a country. You notice that? Every other time that a judge delivers Israel, he has other Israelites who join with him. Here is a man who is rejected by his own people. They tie him up. They bind him over. They hand him to the Philistines to kill him. And they say to him, how come you're causing trouble for us? Samson is Israel's problem, they think. So here he is, a man left really to himself. Okay, up until 4 o'clock this morning, that's where I would have stopped. But it all of a sudden occurred to me that something more significant is going on. What are all these details about? What is the author trying to get across to us that's really important? I think it's, I'm going to take the theme of needs, needs. That's a, that's a hot topic uh, all over the place. And, and I'm going to refer you to one of my favorite movies, What About Bob? It isn't because of the Bob part, but I just love anybody who can drive a psychiatrist crazy. And you know, Bob Wiley does that. But Bob Wiley, in his desperate hour of needs, goes to Lake Winnipesaukee. Remember that? Some of you do. And, and he yells out from the street, Dr. Marvin, Dr. Leo Marvin, I need, I need, I need, he says. That's the watchword of our society. And it struck me, what is it that drives Samson? Now, I'm not going to get into some psychological uh, uh, field of, of speculation in this. I would say this. Samson felt he needed something that this woman would provide. Is that not, is that not a legitimate conclusion? He needed something, and somehow she would do it when an Israelite bride would not. And when she doesn't do it, he's going to get himself another Philistine gal. That we'll see in the first three verses, and, and that's just the temporary version, so then he's got Delilah. He somehow needs something desperately, and here's the catch. He is so eager and so needy to have it, he is willing to make sacrifices to get it. What does he sacrifice on the altar of his need? He sacrifices his Nazarite vow. Does he not? 
He doesn't just sacrifice it. He tramples it. He sacrifices, it seems to me, at this stage in the game, he sacrifices what being an Israelite is all about. He is willing to go be a part of a pagan festival and to go along with what goes with that. He's willing to make sacrifices because of what he thinks he needs and he believes she will provide it. When she fails to provide for his needs, he goes on and on and on seeking the same thing and not finding it. What about Israel's needs? Remember I suggested to you last week that it was interesting that the Israelites are not said to cry out? We're told they're in captivity to the Philistines. We're not told that they cry out to God for deliverance from the Philistines. Is it any wonder then when we come to Samson and Samson is fighting the Philistines and killing them like crazy, when they have the opportunity to join in the battle, they don't do so. In fact, they say to Samson, you're making all kinds of trouble for us. I suggest to you, that the people of Judah, and I would just say in general terms, the people of Israel feel they have a need and somehow Samson doesn't fulfill it. They have a need and somehow the God of Israel doesn't fulfill it. They have a need and they believe the Philistines fulfill it and therefore anybody that tampers with the Philistines is tampering with them. They're willing to sacrifice Samson for their relationship with the Philistines. That's, that's the way I read the text. He has a need. He makes his sacrifices to meet it. They have a need. They make their sacrifices to meet it. Think about Israel in Jesus' day. John the Baptist comes along and he says to the Israelites of that day, Messiah's coming and he's good and mad. He's coming and he's bringing the fire of his judgment and he's saying, you Israelites have a need. Now the Israelites did have a need, but they thought their need was different than what John thought. <laughs> Initially, when they heard Jesus preach, they said, this man is the solution to our problems. That's why the triumphal entry, they're waving those palm leaves and they're hollering and, and, and they're happy to have Jesus come. Because they think their great need is to have Rome thrown out and to have their own government and to have their freedom in that sense when what they need is freedom from sin and its penalty. When they understand that Jesus is not about that, they're willing to sacrifice Jesus for what they believe to be their need. Now think about this. When, when you think about... The circumstances, they say, we have no king but Caesar. They're saying, not Jesus, but Rome. Rome is the one in whom we trust. Rome is the one to whom we submit. Rome is our savior. They say, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Well, he's a murderer and he's a thief, but most of all, he's a terrorist. He's a terrorist. He is one who is seeking actively to overthrow the government. He is more the man that they want than Jesus is. They will sacrifice Jesus because Jesus does not fulfill the needs that they perceive that they have. 
And here's the interesting thing. When I look all the way through the Old Testament and, and I see all of the leaders of, of Israel and why they failed, try this on for size. They failed because they had needs they tried to meet without God. David thought he had a need, and Bathsheba, he believed, was the answer. God said to him, in effect, why didn't you come to me? Don't I provide all that you need? Why didn't you come to me? Solomon felt he had needs, and somehow the God of Israel couldn't be trusted to meet those, but the wives and their gods, somehow they could. So you look all the way through the Old Testament, and what you see is the fatal flaw of Israel's leaders and frankly of everybody, is they have needs that are unmet. I know this sounds psychological, but hold on. Hold on with me. One of the things I never thought about with God when Jesus came to earth is God has no needs. God has no needs. When Satan tempts our Lord Jesus Christ, what is he looking for? He's looking for a need that Jesus wants to meet at the expense of obedience to his Father. Isn't that right? You need bread? I can give you that, but you have to act independently. Do you need recognition or whatever? Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. He looks for a need that Jesus is so eager to meet, he will do it in rebellion against God. I might as well take you back to the fall and say, isn't that what the fall is all about? The fall was Satan convincing Adam and Eve they had a need that God could not meet. And they had to meet by acting independently of God. What is sin? Sin, in my opinion, is trying to meet your needs apart from God. It's trying to find something else to fill your need that isn't God. Idols are those gods that we create to meet our needs that we manipulate so that we're sure it's our needs that are met. That's idolatry. So it seems to me that when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, I was thinking about that at the Lord's table this morning. When you look at the bread, there, that bread is a symbol of his perfection. But it's one thing for someone not to have guilt. Okay? It's, it's something for, for someone not to have sin, and our Lord Jesus was surely that. But the other side of it is that Jesus had everything he needed. So the bread symbolizes not only what he doesn't have that he shouldn't, but what he does have. He is absolutely sufficient, and therefore, our Lord Jesus needs nothing. Now, when you see the story of the incarnation, what do you see happening? Not Jesus coming to earth to get, to gain. He says the Son of Man didn't come to to be served, but he came so that he could give. When you see Christ coming down to earth from heaven, you see him laying things aside. Not saying, I need this desperately. I need men's devotion. I need these other things. He doesn't need anything. And what that means is, when he has no needs unmet then he is free to act as he wants to his glory. It's us with our unmet needs that are desperate people doing goofy things and getting ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Well, let me uh, 
say this. Salvation, then, is our recognition of our desperate need for the forgiveness of sins, for power over sin, for a Savior, and realizing that we will never meet those needs. Christ has met them. That's what salvation is about. I'm in need. He is sufficient. He has met the need. I trust in him. Sanctification is God's taking away of those things in the Christian's life which we still think we need. So for Abraham, it's a son. And God says to him, I'm going to have to have you go through the point of being willing to give up that son so that you understand what you need is me, not him, most of all. You need me. So the sanctifying process that God brings us through is a process by which he's weaning us away from all of those phony things that we think are desperately necessary for our life and our happiness. And God takes each one of those and sets them aside and said, no, it's me. It's me you need. That's what sanctification is about, I believe. Well, I have to make at least one political statement, and so I'll say this. What frightens me most about where our government is going is that government is taking the place of God. Government is telling us we have no needs it won't meet. That frightens me to death because I believe in the end times government will be <laughs> will be God. And even in the ancient times with Rome, what did an emperor want to be? Worship like God. It's not wrong for government to meet its legitimate obligations to need. What I'm saying is it's only Christ who is sufficient to meet our needs. And anything and anyone who stands in the place of God is in trouble. One last statement. I, read, I, I was looking, I, I thought of that song, believe me, I never listened to it, didn't know the words, I had to look them up. That song, I can't get no satisfaction. I read the words, I read the words. Do you, if you look at those words, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna plague you with them right now, certainly not the music, although I could do as well as he did, but, and that wouldn't be hard, but, I'm talking about Nick Jaggers, I think, but, it's talking about all of the things in which the advertisements are promising this and they're promising that, sex is promising this and promising that, and what he says is, I don't get any satisfaction from those things. I get no satisfaction. The saddest thing in the world is that song ends before it gets to Jesus. That's the sad thing. But he's right. He's right. There is no satisfaction other than him. So our Lord Jesus says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Do so because my people have committed a double wrong. They have rejected me, the fountain of life-giving water. They have dug cisterns for themselves, Cracked cisterns which cannot even hold water. They're looking for other, for needs to be met elsewhere. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John chapter 7, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Let the one who believes in me drink, just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and may have it abundantly. There is only one person 
in all of this universe who can meet our needs. And that is Jesus. He has no needs. He has no need. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our deeds. He doesn't need our offerings. <laughs> he has no need. And therefore, he is free to act for his own glory and for our good. Praise God. Father, we thank you for this text. What a needy man Samson was. What a needy people Israel were. How sad that they looked elsewhere than to you. But Father, it's a picture of our own world. It's a picture of our culture. It's a picture of uh, individuals. And it's a sad one. And we simply ask that you would show us the emptiness of finding and seeking to find the satisfaction of our needs in anything and anyone other than you. In Jesus' name, amen.